Well, if you would, uh, we're continuing in our series of the Psalms of Ascent. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 123, 123. If you're, if you're somewhat new to the Bible, we are really happy to have you here. And uh, a little uh, secret, an easy way to find this psalm is to crack your Bible open in the middle. It'll be really close to Psalm 123. And uh, this is part of a series of psalms within the book of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, sung by the people of God as they made their way up to Jerusalem from wherever they found themselves scattered under heaven to worship their God and our God. Psalm 123 reads, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. And with that, uh, our children's church is now dismissed, ages 7 through 10, out this door here on my left, your right. Have a good time together, children, in God's word. And as they're going out, I'll just want to kind of note that this psalm, kind of from a overview perspective is uh, a lament or complaint psalm, but it's sort of an unusual one because it's flip-flopped. It's sort of a reverse lament. Most of the complaints of the psalms begin with the complaint and then end with the solution of looking to God or hearing from God and finding God's relief. But this psalm begins with looking to God, and it sort of holds us in suspense of what it is they're looking for God to do until the very end of the psalm, when we find that what it is they're crying out to God for is relief, mercy, in the face of contempt. Contempt is that feeling that someone or something is not worthy of respect or honor or approval. It is a shame-filling response, a shaming of another person. They are not worthy of basic human respect. Contempt is, in the words of philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. It's illuminating, one student of the Psalms writes, that contempt is singled out for mention here. Other things can bruise, but this is cold steel contempt. It goes deeper into the spirit than any other form of rejection. You're not even worth my time. You're not worth my presence. You're not worth my compassion or my concern. Voltaire, the French writer, said, everything is bearable except contempt. Why is contempt and scorn so painful 
The answer is because you and I are not merely evolved animals. We were created to image God with dignity and honor. Male and female, he created them in his image. Psalm 8 looks to the heavens, beholds the glory of galaxies, and says, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of men that you care for him? And he answers his own question. You created him a little lower than God. You, made in the image of God, are just shy of the divine. And so when that is contradicted, denied, disgraced, it creates a sort of hemorrhaging in our own soul. It is a painful experience having our dignity denied. And we often experience it in this world. Contrary to the dignity God's given us, we experience its contradiction. That painful experience is universal, but it is not uniform. Some have experienced greater contempt to greater degrees from greater crowds than others, though all have tasted its bitterness. The Jewish people in particular singing this psalm had their own peculiar share of national and individual contempt through the millennia. One of the most poignant voices for the soul-crippling pain of a dignity denied, I believe, is Martin Luther King Jr. Last week we celebrated MLK Day and he eloquently and keenly expressed the experience of our black brothers and sisters in America. The systematic, cultural, and personal denial of their dignity over and over and over again. And what I want to do is read a quote from Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which he wrote while he sat in prison to white clerics, other clergymen, who criticized his methods as impatient while he sat in prison. <clears throat> and they sat in their church offices, free. The words he uses now to our ears will sound outdated and perhaps a bit offensive, but I want to honor the words he used, with one exception that will be obvious. Well, without further ado, Martin Luther King wrote the following we have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, and drown your sisters and brothers at whim. <clears throat> when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, 
When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that was just advertised on television, and you see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for your five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile, because no hotel will accept coloreds. When you are humiliated day in and day out by the nagging signs reading white colored, when your first name becomes the N-word, when your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and when your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title, Miss, when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly in a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of a nobodiness, then you will understand why it's difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. Though we rightly expect honor and dignity from our fellow image bearers, and for the rule of law to reflect that, the waiting of the saints for honor and dignity to be restored to them isn't a waiting on men who can neither give nor take dignity, but on God. Where do those who look for glory look for glory? To the all-glorious one, verse one. To you I will lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Charles Spurgeon said it's good to have someone to look up to. The psalmist looked so high, he could look no higher, not to the hills, but to the God of the hills, he looked. Let's do that now. Let's pray. And it was the common Jewish stance to pray with their eyes looking toward heaven. There was one exception to that. You might remember this in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. When the, the faithful felt guilty or shame, they looked down but we look down in the confession of our sins in order that we might again look up. And so would you look up with me? And if you cannot look up yet, confess your sins because there is not only the throne of glory in heaven, but also the throne of grace. And so approach the throne of grace, receive that grace, and then join your eyes upward with me. And let's look to the God of heaven, shall we? Heavenly Father, we address you as the Lord Jesus taught us, our Father who is in heaven. 
We look to you, O oh God, to provide for us dignity and honor. What you have given us at creation and have sustained in your kind providence, Lord, would you restore now to us. Lord, I pray that your word, which is so honoring and dignified, would grant us dignity this morning, the dignity that flows from your throne. Lord, open our eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful things in your word that we might, with the eyes of our heart, see your majesty this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The one who gives and restores our dignity is himself above all earthly powers. The remedy to the shame we feel in contempt from others is not to look at them in resentment and hatred, but to lift our eyes to the one who gives dignity not just at creation, but every day in his care and his concern for us. Who is it that is mindful of man? Who is it that cares for the sons of men? The dread deity and sovereign in heaven himself. Day and night, the angelic hosts who have the privilege of beholding him cannot help but cry out continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We set our eyes upon and continually meditate on the majesty, supremacy, and sovereignty of God. One ancient Jewish translation of our psalm renders this verse O thou that sittest on a throne of glory in heaven. That is the fruit of a worshipful meditation on God's majesty. If God has given us dignity and honor as his image bearers, well, then who can take it away from us? It can be denied. It can be, it can be suppressed. It can be treated as contrary to the dignity we've been given but we will find our solace in the honor and majesty and glory of the throne above from which all dignity pours. The throne of heaven is not only the seat of glory, but the center of sovereignty. We look to the only one who can restore what the powerful may have denied us, suppressed, questioned, and disgraced. Here on the screen, you'll see the psalmists declaring this glory of God. From Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or again, Psalm 135, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and in the seas and in all depths. It wasn't just Israel that confessed this truth. Old Nebuchadnezzar was humbled before God and offered this confession, according to Daniel. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Though powerful men and women threaten our dignity or the dignity of those we love, God overrules them all. As Kelly read this morning in the call to worship, the nations rage and kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Why do the nations rage, asks the psalmist in Psalm 2. 
Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up in a conspiracy against the Lord and against his anointed one. Look at the response of God to the threats of the world's most powerful people. He who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs at their arrogance. The Lord holds them in derision in their pride that they can rule the world, that they have any modicum of power that he himself has not given them for a brief moment, either to bring him glory or to condemn themselves. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Why his wrath? I thought he was laughing. Because of their injustices, because of their denials of human dignity and how they have abusively wielded their power, God answers them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying, what's his response? What's his response to all the threats of the world with their their weapons, their military might, their economic power and threat? As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. I have installed my anointed one. God's answer to the overwhelming threats of the world to human dignity is the appointment of a king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who now reigns in heaven with all authority above and below. He is God's answer to the dehumanization of the nations, to the systematic degradation of human dignity and the continual denial of our glory as his images. The glorified God-man who restores our reign, our royalty, our honor. We must look to the God in heaven and to his Christ. And the moment we look up to him, we, we take on the proper posture. We don't look down upon God. We don't even look upon him as our peer, though he is a friend to sinners like us. We look up. And this is important because I think so often, the way we read the the Gospels, where the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom, we might confuse that and think that means you and I are the master and God is the servant. Not so. Remember when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples? Do you remember what he said to them afterwards when they're all stunned in silence? He says, you call me Lord and Master, rightly so. And if I have done this for you, what then ought you to do for each other? God serves us that we might serve each other and ultimately serve him. And so we look to the throne above as servants, as well as friends, as children who serve faithfully their heavenly Father. And the servants that are described here in verse 2, behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters, the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, signifies what kind of attentiveness is being portrayed here. Servants are waiters. They wait on those they serve. And so with an expectant, prompt eye, they look for the least gesture from the master, from the mistress, as to what his or her needs might be. 
They, they even the, the, the most slight movement of the finger or flick of the wrist might indicate the next command or need. And so they are attentive to the master, watching him closely, expectantly. But what, what's so noteworthy here is what they're looking for the master to give them in this moment. It isn't another task to fulfill, although that would be wholly appropriate. It is the posture of the entire Christian life, following the example of our Lord himself, that our whole lives are lived out in obedience to the will of our Father. That we don't do one thing that is not the will of our Father, but we wait and attend on him. It is the prayer of the apostles in their writings to the churches. I pray that you might know the will of God so you might obey. We are rightfully obedient, attentive servants. It is our most dignified place to serve such a glorious master. But these servants are not waiting for the next task. What are they waiting for? It's repeated three times. Mercy. Till he has mercy. Have mercy, O oh God, have mercy. And they look longingly at his throne, at his hands, waiting for that sign of blessing for that relief, for new mercy. This cry for mercy, this waiting on God for mercy is not a passive waiting. You know what passive waiting is? It's what you do when you order on Amazon, <laughs> right? And Amazon just delivers at your door. You're like, oh, there it is. You go on with your life, right? Most of us, right? We, wait, we go on with our lives, and then when Amazon doesn't show up, the package, we then email Amazon and have to deal with that. But we wait passively. We move on with our lives until it comes. That is not what these faithful are doing. They're not waiting for God to act. They are waiting on God. They are waiting on him. They keep looking for mercy. They keep looking to him for mercy. Because the great temptation for us is to do this. We look to the Lord for mercy, and then a few minutes pass, and we give up, and we look elsewhere. But sometimes the wait can be long. They are looking longingly, expectantly, not because they half expect the master to ignore them, not because they're making puppy dog faces hoping to attract his compassion, not because they're not sure whether or not he will grant them mercy, but rather they are waiting expectantly precisely because they expect mercy. They know it is the character of their master. It is who he is, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, full of loving kindness and mercy. It is his nature to grant mercy. But sometimes we wait. Sometimes we wait a long time. Jeremiah, in his book of Lamentations, shows us what waiting on mercy looks like. 
on the screen, you'll see from Lamentations 3, Jeremiah writes, The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Apparently, waiting long on the Lord is good. It is a good for a man to bear the yoke, to bear up under the weight while he longs for relief. It is good for the woman to wait quietly on the Lord to act, expectantly, knowing it will come. He goes on, let him, this young man bearing the yoke, sit alone in silence for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. We can be humbled for a season because we know in due season he will exalt us. But it's good for us to be humbled. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace, contempt. He goes on, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. I'll read that again. No one is cast off by the Lord forever. None who wait upon him will be disappointed. No, not one. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. There will be grief, but there will also be compassion and there will be a comforting of your soul. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I thought our God is in heaven and does everything that he wills. Does God do anything unwillingly? Well, this is the psalmist's or the, 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 the prophet's pr pr poetic way of saying it is not God's good pleasure to bring suffering. It is not his desire that we might suffer. But sometimes the only route, in fact, not sometimes, always, if the life of Jesus teaches us anything, the only path to the Jerusalem Mount Zion is through the valley of the shadow of death. And so God brings us through the valley, not because he delights in our suffering in the valley, but because he wants to bring us to the mountain. He is not a sadist. He does not delight in our suffering. Rather, he is compassionate and longs to give us comfort. But it is good for us to wait. As painful as it is, to wait not on men to offer relief. Martin Luther King despaired of that, but on God. In this psalm, the faithful are waiting expressly for relief from suffering contempt from others. The contempt may have involved their faces being buried in the dust, their, their faces being mercilessly struck, and their hearts filled with disgrace. And as they say, they've had enough. They have been filled with disgrace. They've been more than filled with disgrace. If this is like, I'm filled, this is like the top of your esophagus. I've had more than enough of disgrace. They are more than filled with contempt. They've had enough. From whom do they experience this contempt? Well, the psalm 
that was originally penned, we don't know by whom or when, described some particular situation that we do not now know. But we know this, the Psalms speak frequently of the nations showing contempt to Israel, derision, making them a laughing stock, a joke, despising them, mocking them, deriding them. The Psalms repeatedly express the, the contempt of the nations toward Israel. Certainly Israel experienced that not only in the days before David, in the days of David, but in the Assyrian exile of northern Israel, in the Babylonian exile of southern Judah, in the Persian exile under their Greek oppression and under their Roman overlords in Jesus' day. They experienced contempt from the nations. But it could also have been within Israel. Oftentimes the psalmist says things like this, of fellow Israelites, may their lying lips be mute who speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. The phrase, those at ease, was used to describe the wealthy in Israel. The women of Bashan who are at ease, the rich and aristocrats of Israel who were at ease and oppressed the poor. God heard the cries of the poor. The poor waited on him and the Lord brought judgment against the rich. So this could be referring both to the nations and to Israel herself, in which the experience of contempt from those at ease and those in powerful positions was experienced. Whatever the particular origin of the psalm, the people of Israel applied it to their own various experiences of contempt as they sang these songs going to Jerusalem. And guys, we do the same thing. We weren't a part of the Assyrian exile. We weren't part of the Babylonian exile. We weren't part of the Persian exile. But we have experiences of contempt. And this song is given to us to express that. Remember, it's a grammar and a lexicon teaching us how to experience and express our feelings of contempt. A contempt is an all-too-common phenomenon uh, in relationships. Dr. John Gottman, an expert with his wife on marriage, says contempt is the single most corrosive behavior in relationship, the single most destructive attitude. And it can look like a number of things, a refusal to consider mitigating circumstances about someone else's behavior, a refusal to try to see the other's perspective, a negative labeling, well, you're just lazy. Well, you're a space cadet. You're a nag. You're a jerk. These are all forms of contempt. Attributing malevolent intent. You're just doing this because you're out to get me. You just always do this to me. That's contempt. Diagnosing the other person. You have a personality disorder. You're a narcissist. Probably not a helpful diagnosis. <laughs> Inability to tolerate disagreement. You just never agree with me. Nonverbal indicators like tone, facial expression, rolling of the eyes. All these are expressions of contempt and they're corrosive to intimacy corrosive to human relationship. Paul Miller defines our enemies as those that, for whom no matter what you do or say, they dislike you. They read into your actions and they judge you. Sometimes, Paul Miller notes, your enemies, for a temporary time anyway, can be members of your own family. 
Your enemy can be your spouse when they express contempt toward you. In fact, John Gottman says of the four horsemen of the apocalypse for marriage that destroy marriage, there's criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. He says the most dangerous and the strongest indicator of divorce is contempt. If you have standing contempt in your marriage, I want to encourage you to talk about that with someone. Contempt will destroy your marriage. So I encourage you to talk to someone about it. Someone in your small group, small group leader. Uh, I have a list of resources for marriage counselors I'm happy to share. But contempt is poison. And so a lot of us experience that. And I have been guilty of expressing contemptuous attitudes towards Stacy that I've had to repent of over and over again. Of course, we can experience contempt from our own children, and they can experience contempt from us. We can experience contempt from coworkers, from our boss, from those that are under us, and make it obvious they do not enjoy being under us, right? We can experience contempt even in the church. We can feel judged, dismissed. You ever shared something intimate or very vulnerable in small group and everyone just sort of moves on? It feels like contempt, doesn't it? Wow, I'm glad I bared my soul. Apparently, I'm not worth processing that. Right? Or just when people can leave after you've invested in them, love them, sat in the hospital with them, and then they're like, I want to go to a community that cares more for me. Okay, so I guess all that was chopped liver, right? It's how we feel. Feels like contempt. Even though they might have very valid reasons to move on, we feel contempt. You know, the, the question I'm often asking myself as a pastor, when people leave frustrated or angry is, am I not enough? And of course the answer is no. <laughs> no, you're not. Yes. You are not a good enough pastor. You are not a good enough preacher. You are not a good enough leader. That's the point. That's the point. So these experiences can lead us to Christ, who is the only sufficient one, the only one who is able to heal our feelings of contempt and bring us relief, bring us dignity when we feel our dignity has been denied bring us honor when we feel dishonored and bring us comfort and wholeness where we have felt wounded. We must look to God and his anointed one in heaven in the midst of our contempt. You know, it's, I noticed this the other day. It's really odd that we have a giant crucifix on the stage. Isn't that weird? Like in what other space would there be a, a giant symbol of human torture and humiliation as a set piece, <laughs> whatever this is. It's weird, but not uncommon, is it, for churches to have a giant crucifix, a giant cross in this case. Jesus is not on this cross because he's not on the cross anymore. It's a reminder to us of the humiliation of Christ that symbolizes and shows us his depth of his love 
and his commitment to show us honor. He became dishonored so you and I would be honored. His dignity was denied so our dignity would be restored. His glory was spat on, treated like he was a fool so you and I could be glorified with him in his resurrection. The Lord we look to, Jesus, isn't just the sovereign over all authority in heaven and earth. As I love how John the apostle puts it, the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, I don't know if you're worried about Russia or China or North Korea. Listen, there's one in control. He's in total control. You can trust him. And you might wait on the Lord for a long time, but he will comfort, he will restore. And you know how we know that? Because Jesus of Nazareth came to earth. He himself experienced this disgrace. Look on the screen with me from Psalm 22. Saul, David wrote this as a poetic hyperbole of his own experience, but it was Jesus's literal experience, Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned, same word, same root, by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Notice he's scorned both by humanity, mankind, and by the people, Israel. They make mouths at him, which is another way of saying they mock him. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. From both the nations and Israel, the Messiah experienced scorn, mocking, derisive laughter, contempt. And it was painful to his soul. It was soul crippling. The one whom angels worshipped was spat on. You know what happened? He waited on the Lord. From a cross, he waited on the Lord. And the Lord answered him. Three days later, the father raised him from the dead, declaring his son majestic, lifting him to the highest throne of heaven. The name above every name at which every knee will bow in heaven above, on earth, and under the earth. Every knee will give honor to the one who was despised. And if he's there in glory and you trust in him, you will be there with him too. Whatever contempt you are experiencing, it will not last. There is one who sees and who cares and who is and will restore your honor and dignity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the songs of your people that instruct us and give us words to sing, trusting that you, the God of all glory, have freely, graciously given that glory to us. Lord, as we serve you now in the act of worship, would you serve us and give us honor 
and dignity from your throne, we pray. Amen.